Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther. And today we have a very special guest, Lucian Niemeyer, the founding partner of the United Coalition for Advanced Nuclear Power. He is, of course, a former Air Force officer. He served on as a professional staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee and was recently the Assistant Secretary of Defense who managed all of the DOD's properties and real estate. A big job, because we got a lot of stuff in a lot of places. So Amen. welcome into NucleCast. Oh, Adam, I'm really thrilled to be here with you and uh, to be able to share some insight over the next half hour on all things nuclear. So looking forward to being able to cover a lot of ground with you. Well, awesome. So, you know, we normally will have DOD or NNSA folks to talk about weapons, delivery vehicles, Occasionally, we talk about adversaries, but today we're going to talk a lot about nuclear power. And so as I was thinking about today's episode, I was thinking about the French nuclear program because they made a, a purposeful choice, you know, 60 years ago that they wanted to be heavily reliant on nuclear power. It seems to have worked pretty well for them. The United States built a number of nuclear plants 50, 60 years ago, and then we haven't had one in four decades, I think yep, is about right. right. 30 and years. Then, and now we have all of these new uh, models, nuclear power. And I think this is, this is really where your expertise comes in. So can you maybe offer the listeners sort of a broad swath of, of where we are now, as opposed to where we were 40 years ago and, and help maybe dispel some of the myths of the challenges that nuclear power poses, thinking in terms of Chernobyl and then, you know, the accident in, in Japan and sort of where are we now? Yeah. So, hey, first of all, I appreciate that. And, and believe it or not, there really is a nexus. There's a connection uh, between what we're working in the nuclear uh, weapon world, uh, particularly with the triad recap, and ultimately what we're trying to do. With, with nuclear power reactors, both on the battlefield um, and, uh, and also for commercial use. So I'll, I'll cover that a little bit. You know, my, my, uh, I've been studying and working um, in, in the defense energy space for, uh, for 25 years. Um, and one of the things that I really picked up on when I became Assistant Secretary of Defense, I was not only running the real estate portfolio, but also the energy programs and environmental programs for the Department of Defense. And so we, we looked at, and I was actually given very specific instructions by Secretary of Defense we want to start using smaller microreactors as a grid resiliency initiative. Um, so there was an understanding that uh, in, a, in a connected world, um, the homeland's no longer sanctuary, um, and our pure competitors, to include Russia right now, and what they're doing to the Ukrainian grid, are going to reach out and start uh, 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 causing disruption or causing power outages or another way that denying our ability to get reliable energy to be able to conduct national security missions as well as our as, our, as well as support society, 
Um, so we started looking a while ago where uh, nuclear power can augment other national security priorities. And we realized that you were right. In th the past 30 years, our, our domestic nuclear energy ecosystem, our industry has atrophied. Um, the Russians and Chinese right now are leading the way on, on small and next generation reactors. We have fallen behind. And so the realization was in order for us to maintain a robust uh, weapons nuclear uh, program, we needed to ensure we had a robust civilian industry. And I'll give you a perfect case in point. For a while there, I was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and we had a, a, an honest discussion within the Navy. Hey, how do you tell a young kid coming out of college to be a nuclear power engineer for the Navy, but not necessarily have a career after the military? So the realization is, is as we are looking at um, the need for clean, reliable power sources, uh, nuclear energy fits the bill. And we've, and we've seen engineering mature over the last, as you can imagine, 30 years, where the new generation of reactors that we're looking at are smaller, uh, are, are definitely uh, much more stable, um, and in some cases, uh, foolproof. Um, so the goal is how can we as a nation um, uh, take a look, a fresh look, uh, understanding the concerns we've had, uh, not just about safety, but also about what do we do with spent fuel rods. We've made a lot of progress in the last 30 years. And what we see, what I see, is the growth of a civilian nuclear reactor and uh, industry base which ultimately will help out the military in three ways. Like I mentioned, maintain a domestic, robust domestic supply chain, also potentially offer us power on the battlefield you know, through, through modular portable nuclear reactors. And we'll talk about the Army's Pele program, or actually, I'm sorry, the Department of Defense's Pele program. And then we're also looking at putting reactors on military bases and taking those bases off the grid so we have much more reliable power and they can't be undermined by a near-peer competitor. Now you it's two really interesting ideas this idea that you know we're going to take uh nuclear power and we're going to take it to the battlefield and for many of those who ardently oppose all things nuclear that you know that's going to you know cause some hand waving and you know some you know decrying that you know the safety could could you maybe speak to that and you sure know thing. how is yeah. this safe why do we want to do it so first of all, if you're really worried about it, um, talk to me. So I'll, I'll, we'll put some uh, information at the end up. Uh, but look, we've been putting um, uh, nuclear reactors in the battle space for, for 30 years. No one no one knows. But every time you send an aircraft carrier or a nuclear-powered submarine uh, forward, uh, we are using advanced reactor technology. So, so it's not a matter of should we do it at all. We are doing it. And there are in incredible safety practices and processes set up for safely deploying a reactor into the battle space. Question is, how can we take those lessons without causing a concern for for uh, black role technologies to be to be used on a commercial side? But how can we take that concept and create a, a portable reactor for land forces, just like we've done for sea forces? We decided, and God bless Admiral Rickover, we decided 50 years ago we wanted to be a nuclear fleet because we didn't want to be relying on fuel tethers. And, and being having to be resupplied. So our nuclear-powered um, warships can go on for months without being refueled. We need the same thing. Our near-peer competitors, the first thing they're going to do if we get into a conflict in Asia Pacific or even in Europe, they're going to cut our fuel supply because they know without fuel supply, without technology, we, don't, we, we, we won't prevail on the battlefield. So we need to come up with a, a source of energy, of power, that cannot be in any way denied or exploited. So from my perspective, Department of Defense, what they're doing with uh, with um, test reactors 
to be able to forward deploy those, that releases us from that tether of fuel that's so critical for us to be able to carry out our missions. So when you when you talk about micro reactors on the battlefield, give us give us an, a picture of what they look like, what they do, how they remain safe. Yeah. So uh, first of all, a quick you know thirty second review. Right now, we've got 93 commercial reactors operating around the country, pr providing our country about 20% of its electricity needs. Those are each reactor is running about 1.1 to 1.3 gigawatt. All right. So they're pretty large. They've, they've taken you know decades to build. In Georgia, we're still building one. Uh, so those are huge. And so we say small reactor. That's coming in at about 500 meg or below. And that's enough to power a city. And so those are the companies like TerraPower that's looking at putting about a three to 400 megawatt reactor up in Wyoming on a, on a, on a closed coal plant. So those are the smalls. Now, when we talk micro, depending on who you talk to, they're between 20 and 30 meg of electricity. Plus, they also can put out heat, which is an, a, another great thing for a reactor. So, so that gives us you know, an additional capability. That's enough to power uh, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Airport continually or a, a very large military installation or, or a microgrid. Um, so when we get down smaller than that, which is what we're looking at right now for the Air Force, that's down about the five to 10 meg. So that's enough to be able to power a base consistently. Now, Pele, uh, which is the program within uh, Department of Defense looking for deployment, we're down there to about one to five meg, and that's for a forward operating base. And the goal is to be able to fit that reactor into three Connex boxes and be able to either to barge it or to ship it overseas and to be able to set it up quickly. So that would be enough for an expeditionary camp or some kind of forward location for us to operate power and to some degree maybe power in the local community around it. So as I think about the the picture you're describing, three Connex boxes at a FOB, you know, pick a country, Iraq, Afghanistan, and adversaries, you know, the Russians are really good at artillery, long-range artillery. So as Russians start barraging, uh, you know, an American FOB, what's the safety protocols? How do we make sure that, you know, we don't see uh, a nuclear reactor, you know, that's, that's struck and, you know, we create radiological waste? So believe it or not, in the last 50 years, we've come up with new ways to fuel reactors. Um, so right now we've got what, we, what they call accident tolerant fuels, that there was some type of disruption. The fuel itself would freeze up and not form any, any type of, 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 of radioactive threat. So there are ways, and we and those are being engineered in the Pele for, for enhancing the safety of these probable reactors. Yes, I mean, do you want to you know, put one up on a tower and be a target? No. But you, the, the way you you deploy them, you know, you, just like you would burn a, jet, a set of generators or you would burn a fuel bladder, you would protect as best you can the reactor. But more importantly, is if there was a direct hit on the reactor, uh, we're talking about a lot less radioactive material, a lot less. People don't realize in this country that when we um, extract a spent fuel rod from a from a major reactor, there's still about 80, 85 percent of that energy left. Matter of fact, our inventory in the United States could power our country for 100 years. So what we're seeing in some cases is taking that old fuel rod, reprocessing it, and making it safer and being able to put it in much smaller amounts into these microreactors. So, so uh, the combination of the amount of radioactivity plus what we're engineering around the rod and, in, and within the rod to create new types of fuel makes it eminently safer on the battlefield. Well, it's it's interesting to hear – 
you know, the, the, the picture you're creating, because, you know, I think I'm a fairly well-read guy and, you know, I read widely and a lot, and this is not stuff that I, I hear much about. I, I and I, I'm curious cause this is, this is a pretty innovative game changing, a, you know, tool. Why am I not hearing about this more? Why do well, I have to hear yeah. it from you? Yeah, because well, uh, it's there. You know, there's a common perception. You know, every, you know, everybody is influenced by social influencers, and unfortunately, that the, the premier social influencer right now for nuclear energy is what you see on The Simpsons, which is you know, you know, you know dripping you know green goo, um, and that's and that's unfortunately you know folks aren't looking beyond that, and then they hear about Three Mile Island or Fukushima or Chernobyl um, without a clear understanding of what actually happened in those accidents. And then the realization that there are, there are nuclear engineers and physicists who have taken those, you know, accidents and said, okay, how do we not ever let that happen again? And yes, they are, they are experimenting out at, at, at Idaho Falls, Idaho. We have an amazing national lab out there, um, Idaho National Lab, that is looking at these reactors, studying the fuels. Um, the reason why we're probably not here, but we don't have one actually in uh, advanced reactor in operation. And that's, and that's really what my nonprofit is, it was set up to do is, take these reactors out of the test world, take Pele out of the lab and actually put it in operation. And that's our goal over the next uh, five or six years. And I think we'll raise awareness on the enhanced safety um, to the point of being meltdown proof. Everybody hears the term meltdown. Right. The new generation of, of reactors just will not melt down. Um, and, and they also have other cooling mechanisms. As you know, Fukushima uh, wasn't a core meltdown as a result of an earthquake, it was the tsunami that accompanied the earthquake that swamped the backup powers, uh, backup power for cooling. And so we're, we've learned those lessons. Um, so, the, so the goal is, yes, we're not talking about technology that I read about in the paper that they're comparing 50-year-old nuclear technology. We have modern technologies. No one's writing about it. Yeah, that's, you know, it's kind of interesting for me as a guy who focuses mostly on the weapon side to hear about the power side and just to, you know, there's, there's not a lot that's, you know, it's not in, you know, the, the mainstream press and you, all you ever hear is about accidents. We don't want that. We don't three mile Island. I know a little bit about it and I understand how much radiation was released and it was almost nothing, but the, the narrative is completely different. So to me, it, in, well, it, was, a, it was a fear factor and look, you know, I, I agree. You know, do we want to take that risk? Um, you know, 40 years ago, we we stopped really building nuclear power plants because there was a risk. Um, and even now we're looking at clean power source. And if it wasn't for our desire to want to get to, to uh, zero climate goals, I don't think you would see the Biden administration embracing nuclear power. I mean, because of the fact that uh, there's a realization um, that renewable energy by itself, we're coming nowhere close to meeting our goals. We need to have nuclear power. So realism is starting to step in. That, that nuclear power as a zero carbon is starting by itself as that solution to raise awareness among a group of folks who never would have thought about it before because we just cannot get to our climate reduction goals without more nuclear power. Now it's time for us to take a quick break and we will be back. So keep joining us on NucleCast. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the 15th Annual Nuclear Deterrent Summit. Come join NucleCast at the summit on February 13th through 15th, 2023 at the Hyatt Regency Crystal City, 
Arlington, Virginia. Industry and government experts will be discussing management of the nuclear security complex, stewardship of the nuclear stockpile, arms control negotiations, and strategic policy. Stop by the Nuclecast booth to say hello. Executive producer Kimberly Charrington and I will be there interviewing guests for upcoming episodes. You can find a registration link to the Nuclear Deterrent Summit with a 15% discount on the Nuclecast website at anwadeterred.org slash Nuclecast. We are back on Nuclecast, and we, of course, have Lucian Niemeyer, the founding partner of the United Coalition for Advanced Nuclear Power, and we're talking about the the new models, the new reactors, and what I, to me, seems a pretty clear narrative that we're, you know, and, and it's a narrative for the, the weapons folks where we're kind of losing it because we're the, you know, we're sort of the minority out there in terms of advocating for for weapons and the deterrence they provide. And on the power side, I think that the voices that oppose it are significantly greater than those that are advocating for it. Can How do you change the narrative? Are you getting buy-in from, say, for those that want, you know, an all-electric America where nobody has gas cars anymore and we're all driving electric? And then we see brownouts and, you know, California mandates that they won't sell gasoline cars, internal combustion engines anymore. And then they say, and by the way, when you buy your electric vehicle, don't charge it because we don't have the power. Are, yeah. are, are you getting, you know, the, the environmental movement to support nuclear power or are they still opposing? What What's the status there? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny in, in life, you know, you can have your own personal opinions and beliefs, uh, and then there are those who oppose you, but you realize those who oppose you are walking right back to your solution. So California is a perfect example. Governor Newsom made it very clear that he want, does not want to rely on nuclear power until reality hit, until he realized that if he shut down Diablo Canyon, there were going to be blackouts and brownouts in California. So it's amazing when idealism meets realism, you know, what ultimately prevails. So we are starting to see the idealism of an all-electric society, of a renewable energy base. And you start seeing the calculations of the amount of the acreage that's going to be required for all the solar fields and all the wind farms and all the transmission. And finally, you got the idealists going, uh, yeah, no, this is a problem. If you want to get serious about carbon reduction, it ain't going to happen with renewables only. Guess what they're now uh, turning to? So those who are realists about carbon reduction versus real uh, idealists about green energy, you have to go back to nuclear being a core part of that solution. So... You know, I may not necessarily always agree with every environmental goal we have, but in this case, uh, it is opening the minds and aperture for, for those who are realists. You know, what do we need for a blended generation base, particularly that's reliable? I mean, and we don't have a storage at scale. Nuclear is really the only clean energy option right now. So I can imagine, I, I want to go back to the defense side of it. And I, you created a picture for me that I can imagine of three connexes burned up, protected. You know, you, I did. I didn't realize that we had, uh, we had created new fuels in which you know they they're essentially self-protecting. That we don't. I, that that's news to me. I, I can only imagine it's probably news to many of the listeners. 
But I, I also want to go back to thinking about power for, for basing, because as, as I try to plan out a potential conflict with Russia or China, it seems to me that it, one of the first things I'm going to do if I'm the Russians or the Chinese is I'm going to launch a cyber attack against against uh, Air Mobility Command and Transcom to shut down the the United States' ability to move stuff and people. And then I'm probably going to try to take out uh, power because, you know, most of our bases are dependent upon commercial power. And so I can easily see targeted attacks against commercial power to stop, you know, our bases from being able to operate in a steady state environment. So do you, you, you mentioned that you would, you can see nuclear power being sufficient or replacing commercial power. How would you secure that? Is, is there, you know, is this, because we're intimately worried about cyber attacks against power systems. So how, what's the cybersecurity element of these, you know, micro reactors on bases? I can imagine it's a, it's a much smaller task because of this almost enclosed environment you can create. So, um, uh, you've just hit my other love. Uh, actually, the one that I hit, uh, I'm devoting more time to than nuclear power is cybersecurity. Um, so I, uh, I could talk for hours about, you know, where the grid is vulnerable, what we're doing as a nation to enhance those protections against cyber attacks, and ultimately what a nation state's interests are. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not as worried about a wide, wide scale outage. I'm worrying about uh, targeted cyber attacks that inhibit our ability to deploy forces forward. Um, or in, in theater. And I'm not worried about just cyber attacks because the Russians have been trying to knock out the Ukrainian grid through cyber attacks um, since February. We And the Ukrainians and, and the NATO nations and even the United States have done an amazing job of cyber defending against those attacks. And that's why they're going right back now to artillery attacks and kinetic attacks. But I agree with you. Uh, we're maybe not seeing the most sophisticated attack scenarios cyber, cyber realm. And we definitely do have vulnerabilities in our grid. Um, you know, I, I, I think there are ways for nuclear power by using distributed energy sources in an isolated and islanded grid would protect us from a large scale outage. Um, and look, in the first places we're looking at doing that, believe it or not, is Alaska. Yeah. I mean, that makes kind of, kind of set a lot of sense here. Uh, we've got a critical uh, people don't realize may not realize we have an unbelievable array of critical assets within a couple of hundred miles from Fairbanks. We've got one of the largest radars in the world uh, nearby. We've got a ground-based interceptor site right here near Fairbanks. We've got two F-35 squads at Allison Air Force Base, and then we've got you know, a brigade and then some at Fort Wainwright. So that's exactly what the military is asking the same questions you are. Where should we be looking? And if you look at the Alaskan grid, it's a little more vulnerable than uh, than ERCOT and some of the, uh, the lower 42 grids. So that's where the military just a month ago, put out an RFP, I'm sorry, a request for proposals for putting a micro reactor at Eilson Air Force Base. So they're moving forward on these things. They are they are saying, yes, this is a real threat. Yes, we need to do something on these critical assets. And we're willing to put out a proposal to get from developers, how do we station over the next few years a reactor at Eilson? So it's not just thinking about it, we're, we're starting to take steps. My bigger concern, and, and God bless the folks at the Special Capabilities Office SCO, and Department of Defense, where they're saying, look, battlefield logistics, contested environment, we're in a world of hurt right now. We've got to get in front of that. And so you, you start, people start to say, okay, how we deploy these, 
what is the scenario. So there's a lot of thinking and, and discussion going on in DoD, as well as putting our money where our mouth is and getting one actually built and operating, which is what uh, the Idaho National Lab is doing and collaborating with the Department of Defense. So do you, as I understand it, one of your biggest challenges is the regulation to build and field nuclear reactors, that it's just tremendous. And that, that's one of the the big costs is just getting through the regulatory process. Oh, yeah. So is is there any movement to simplify that? Is there, you know, because of the evolution of technology, are we seeing that Congress and, you know, the president or past presidents have said, you know what, I think we're in a better place now than we were 40, 50 years ago when we were building these you know, these, this previous generation of plants such that we now trust them and we can simplify the process, or is it still as complex as it ever was? Yeah, yeah, Adam, you're, you're hitting all the right questions, and, and that's one of the big issues right now. You've got the Russians and the Chinese already deploying small module reactors, um, uh, and either, either within their own country or, or they're installing them in other countries. Um, and the problem is, and, and that's the biggest risk to this particular industry, is if they're not designed safely, if there's if there's not you know a real good look at the engineering, and if one goes bad, it kills the entire industry. So so yes, um, I'm a big fan of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, they've been providing a safe review for both engineering and construction for the last uh, 50, 40 years for us, and they should continue to take a look at even this new generation of reactors, um, and 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 you know making sure that we are providing the safest engineering design that we can. Um, now, I would say, though, that the process has taken way too long. And Congress, in, in their own way, uh, made it even harder. Back in the 70s, they required developers to self-fund the NRC process, which could be up to a billion dollars, just the licensing process. Mm. Um, so it, it has really killed innovation. So, yes, there are efforts in Congress right now um, to maintain the rigor of the review, but to, but to acknowledge that there's two new technologies that are out there, technologies, and then they, and to maybe expedite the review of those technologies and shorten the process. Because right now, an NRC license can take anywhere from three to five to seven years. We've got to move, if nothing more, to meet our climate goals. We've got to move so much quicker on getting from a, 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 a test reactor to actually getting one operating in the grid. So, yes, Congress is looking at that. They are putting pressure on NRC. Their NRC is supposed to be coming back with some suggestions on how to expedite the process, but we're going to need to do that because we're not we're not applying we're not looking at the same engineering that built these reactors from the 60s on this gigantic hundred acre site. We're looking at an assembly line in a factory. How can you use that compactness, that automation, the use of AI to help build these things, and and then address that in the engineering review process? Saying yeah. You know, we don't necessarily need to go through a year of material testing. We've got this in a couple of weeks. So those are the types of things we're working right now with the NRC. Now, you mentioned you know, in the opening of our discussion that there's a tie between the weapons side and the power side. Can you maybe oh, yeah. offer some discussion? What, what is that tie? Because I don't necessarily think all of our listeners understand that. Yeah, so, you know, we, so we, uh, the United States, have led the world with nuclear energy development and nuclear weapon development since World War II. Um, and, and they, they kind of feed off each other, uh, because of the fact if you're spending money in one area that's related, you have a tendency to bring down the cost in another area. And one of the co-founders of, of UCAM Power, that's what we call ourselves, you know, David Sherrington, who also works with ANWA, uh, saw, saw that even in, in his Senate days, 
on if you if you're promoting a range of initiatives, you're ultimately going to bring down the cost overall because of some overlapping technology, overlapping development. So we have allowed our civilian nuclear industry to atrophy over over the last 30 years, where we're starting to now add costs for the one-offs or on the on the nuclear weapons side. Mm -hmm. So the goal is, uh, and the goal of my nonprofit is to is to work on initiatives that restore our domestic supply chain from uh, enrichment of uranium to processing of uranium to the development of this of the specialty metals and the piping and all the things we need that need to be certified for nuclear use that ultimately will help us as we're recapping, recapitalizing our land-based nuclear fleet. Uh, so there's definitely uh, economies of, of effort to be gained. Um, and more importantly, the restoration of, of, of workforce expertise. We are atrophying as a nation if we are not investing in our nuclear engineers, our nuclear scientists, to want to continue to work both on the weapon side and on the civilian side. So the goal is how do you reward that workforce? How do you keep them engaged on innovation to drive both sides? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing. And I was, I'm thinking back to an earlier part of our discussion where you talked about the Navy. And I actually have a son. He's only 12 now, but uh, he wants to go into the Navy like dad. But he, he said, you know, dad, when I get out, I want to make at least $150,000 a year. And I thought, well, geez, I, yeah. I'm not sure what jobs pay that when you get out of the Navy. And so yeah. we started looking it up. And, you know, your, your nuclear, you know, your nuclear power operators, your nuclear reactor operators, you know, they do fairly well. And so I said, well, and, and cybersecurity too. If you want to come out of, you know, come out of the Navy with a cyber uh, background, you'll make a lot of money real fast. Yeah. And it, it, it goes to your point that, you know, you, for, for somebody to want to do it in the Navy. Uh, and I had a few friends in the Navy that that's what they did. And they got out and they work in Arkansas and other places. And you got to have places for them to work. And then it, it also makes me think about, you know, I'm a, a Texan. And so as an expat living outside my country, I read Texas Monthly. And there was a big series of articles about the big power outage. And one of the, the aspects that we, you know, a few years ago, and one of the aspects of it was that, you you know, you lost your renewables, you know, you your solar was covered in snow. You, you know, it was it was a comedy of of challenges. But you know, it to me, it seems that one of the solutions to that, you know, when the rare times Texas is just coated in snow, is that you you know nuclear power offers you you know an, an alternative. Yeah, yeah. You know, first of all, ERCOT was a tragedy, um, and because we lost over two hundred folks uh, due to that power outage. And look, uh, to me. Uh, the reliability of our grid trumps any issue that we're trying to address when it comes to energy. You know, uh, as a secretary, a secretary of defense, I had to testify before Congress about the range of, of threats, resiliency threats. And yes, I get it. A lot of folks are committed to environmental, you know, the environmental threat, you know, severe weather threat, um, you know, carbon reduction uh, goals. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, I, I get it. Um, but what I want is reliable power. I don't want to kill people today because the power goes out. Uh, I don't want to, uh, you know, to uh, allow us to be taken down by a cyber attack. Um, so when you look at investments, reliability has to be the top priority. Now, ERCOT, that was a series of missteps. I mean, they just had not designed some of their grid for the cold weather they received. Sure. And believe it or not, even the nuclear power plants had some issues uh, me, re, uh, maintaining capacity during that outage. And then you throw in, you know, the wind underperformed and, 
you know, and, and so it was a comedy. It, it wasn't a comedy. I'm so sorry. I don't want to say that it was not a comedy. It was a tragedy. But it was a, a collaboration of, 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 of issues related to the extreme cold weather sure. um, that led to that. So, yes, uh, we should invest in that. Um, more nuclear on that particular grid? Yes. I mean, I think we do have to acknowledge the reality that, um, that renewables are intermittent. And unfortunately, intermittent power without scale of that scaled storage kills. I mean, that even goes for hydropower, you know, that we're starting to see some issues in the Northwest. So I would want to emphasize uh, protection of human life is the highest priority. Uh, now, whether that means more nuclear or, or better storage or storage at scale, that's what we need to figure out on the economics what works nationwide. So we're at the end of the show. It's, it's been an interesting discussion. I've, you know, I've, I've learned a lot today. So I always appreciate when you do a show and you learn a lot. That's, so that's good. If you want to leave our listeners with something, you know, a takeaway, what, what is that takeaway? Um, it's something actually that uh, that the, the Biden administration said that we cannot meet realistically our carbon reduction goals and our reliability uh, priorities. Because remember, I, I'm not going to sacrifice reliability for anything else without uh, investing in advanced reactors in, in the next generation of nuclear uh, power. Um, and that, to me, is it's become the reason why we are working so hard to make this reality to raise awareness is we've got to educate folks on the science. Not the fear, not the, you know, the 60-year-old technology, but what exists today at Idaho National Lab, what is being invested in by the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, on the next generation reactors that will address the concerns that we have as a nation about safety and about spent fuel storage. So I'm asking your viewers, get educated. Stop relying on fear. Look at the science. Look at what's happening right now in nuclear energy. And then make the realization that, and come to the realization that I have, um, that we definitely need this power source commensurate with other power sources to truly meet our increased electrification demands over the next 40 years. All right. Lucian Niemeyer, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. Oh, Adam, it's a thrill, and I would love to continue to come back, and we'd love to talk cybersecurity. I'm going to try to convince your son to get into that profession <laughs> as well. So. Uh, he's already told me, Dad, I don't want a job where I have to sit at a desk. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, cybersecurity cyber and, and nuclear power can be exciting. Uh, the only problem is when you're getting off, up, off your desk in nuclear energy, it's normally not for a good reason. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. And to the listeners, we'll see you next time on Nuclecast. All right. Sounds good. We just had a great interview with Lucian Niemeyer, and we talked a lot about the current state of nuclear power. And it was something I just didn't know much about. I, I knew a little bit because I, I read and I occasionally hear some stuff, but I didn't know we had self-protecting fuel rods and we had ways to put nuclear power 
uh, plants in three Connex containers and take them to the battlefield and just the state of the technology. It was pretty interesting. So hopefully you'll enjoy it and uh, let me know what you think.